Hi, so uh, welcome. Um, I'm going to do basically an artist talk. I'm just going to talk you through my, my comics-based work. I, I do make other work, or I have made other types of work in the past because I'm from a fine art background. I've always been interested in storytelling and narrative, so I've kind of made a lot of work in that mode. <clears throat> um, however, I'm here tonight to talk about comics, and um, if I'm honest, I'm not clear when I might make a work that's not comics-based. Uh, it seems to have completely taken over now. I'm quite happy about that. I, I love comics as a medium. Um, I think it's got a lot of potential that's underestimated. Um, and I'm enjoying some of the work that I'm making currently. And I'm going to show you some of the, the most recent work I've, that I've made that was just published yesterday, actually by uh, the University of Bedfordshire, and if you follow me on Twitter, you'll have already seen the images. So, I'm going to start at the beginning, which is uh, Becoming Unbecoming, which I wrote quite a long time ago now, and, and it took me quite a long time to complete, about seven years from start to finish, including uh, publishing it and holding it in my hand, so that's quite a long time. Um, it's been obviously well received, which is nice. I didn't actually know at the time that I was making it what people would make of it, and I was aware that it was a fairly strange book in, in lots of ways. Um, it's done well. It's um, It was originally published by Myriad Editions in the UK in 2015, and then there's, an art, there's a, a North American edition, which is for the US and Canada, um, published by Arsenal Pulp. And it's uh, in Portuguese by Brazil, by Nemo. It's in Spanish by Esti Berry. I have a lot of Spanish language um, followers and readers who contact me fairly regularly. And the book was highlighted at Semana Negra, which is in uh, Guion in Spain, um, which was absolutely brilliant, uh, a whole, an exhibition and, and really, um, it had reading for someone called Norm, Norman Fernandez, who was um, curating the exhibition and writing the catalogue. It's really kind of made him stop and think about depictions of crime. So really been quite influential in that way. <clears throat> There's also a Netherlands edition, which was my first translation. And I do get a little bit of contact now from people, mostly academics in the Netherlands, so that's nice. This is where I work. So this is my shed. It's quite a big shed. Um, I can never remember how many feet it is, and I don't really do feet in inches anyway. So, but it's probably about as big as this area over here. <clears throat> this is my light box, uh, looking out onto my garden, and then behind me I have a wall where I can hang bigger drawings. Um, I have a little bed in there sometimes in the summer. I have a nice afternoon nap when I need one. And at the side of the light box, you can see in a little pile that that's becoming unbecoming. That's what it looks like on um, bits of Bristol board. So as Dom or Dominic, who are you? Dom's fine. Um, as you said, most of you have probably read the book, but I always include this slide as a kind of potted version. I had grown up with the knowledge that I had to be careful or the ripper might get me. 
I had grown up with the knowledge that I had not been careful enough, so the Ripper might especially want to get me, because bad things don't happen to good people. And here's obviously me uh, growing. So when I decided to write something like an autobiography, I was looking to contextualise it because I was aware that there were a lot of tick boxes um, that would potentially make a, a very good misery novel and that's not really what I wanted. Although I think there are some very good Bad Blood by Lola Sage, I think is a really epic uh, misery novel, beautifully written, but I think it, they're, they're quite rare. Um, as really beautiful things that are kind of lasting and endure. And I wanted to make something that was maybe a little bit different from that without avoiding confronting head-on the things that had happened to me as a child, but, but while definitely avoiding depictions of violence. Um, and I was quite interested at the time I was studying representations of the Holocaust after Adorno, and I was quite interested in those kind of representations of trauma. Um, I'd read Mouse. It was about the third or fourth serious graphic novel that I read. And I was really kind of thinking, you know, I like to be ambitious with my work, but is this too ambitious? Am I actually really the person who can write a book about growing up in the 70s and rape and murder and the Yorkshire Ripper and all of that. Is that actually me? So I was just kind of doodling away in, in my lunch hour and in my attic. We lived in a different house then, so I was, I was at the mad woman in the attic, in fact, which is quite nice. <laughs> <clears throat> this is one of the first drawings that I made. Um, it's one of the few original drawings that remains in the book because... Once I'd made a few drawings and I was thinking, oh, this is definitely a project. I don't know whether it's a book yet, but it's a, some kind of project. However, it doesn't fit with my, the other work that I'm making, which was um, at the time kind of based in sound and um, storytelling and installations and kind of historic buildings, that kind of thing. So it didn't kind of fit with that. And I thought, I know, I'll go and show it to a, a very eminent professor at the University of Leeds um, whose opinion I trusted. And so I went and showed it to her, um, showed her about, I don't know, maybe 20 drawings. And we had a really interesting conversation about this problem of depicting violence, depicting trauma. How do you articulate um, events, traumatic events, without, um, without repeating the trauma? without making something, especially when what you're talking about is child abuse, without making something very voyeuristic. And this image I was quite happy with. And it kind of became the baseline, I think, um, for the other drawings, many of which were quite abstract. <clears throat> there are lots of drawings that are based on just ink spreads and blots and weird scribbles that I made, yeah. Um, but this was the baseline, I think, because it's based in the everyday, which I'm very interested in. It's very pared down. I think it's, I feel like it's drawn into the real by what I think of as punctum here with the yellow brownie tie and the little red 
cross on the nurse's outfit. I really did own a nurse's outfit. And my dad always likes to tell the story that me and my sister, he likes to make my sister out to be, you know, um, a little bit um, um, maybe overambitious. So she asked for a horse and I asked for a brownies. Uh, I asked for a nurse's outfit and obviously I got the nurse's outfit, but she didn't get the horse. So, <clears throat> yeah, they all carry stories. I really did have uh, pants with the days of the week on. It used to very much annoy me when I didn't wear <laughs> the corresponding day. Obviously, this is a gift then, isn't it? You know, further on in the book, I'm thinking, okay, what's the kind of superficial justice? What's that about? These are real things that you can buy on a website that's for um, judges. Yeah, there's, a, there's an online shop. <laughs> And you can buy cufflinks that say guilty and not guilty on them. Who knew? <laughs> so this is one of those. It's an evolution, actually, from a different drawing, which was um, just a big ink blot. I'm quite keen on just playing with ink and seeing what happens. Had a, quite a big row with my editor about this one. And she wasn't sure about it. Had to keep altering the blot. She kept saying, oh, no, it doesn't look like, how does that look like a reputation? I don't know, I don't know, what does a reputation look like? So what it says here, it says, <clears throat> this is how I found out I had something called a reputation that I was supposed to have been looking after. I didn't even get a good look at it before it was gone. There was a lot of research went into the book. I... Um, had to do quite a lot of reading around statistics um, and sexual violence in the present as well as the um, research that I did about the 1970s and the, the hunt for Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. The, the research I did for the parts of the book that relate to the 70s or, or that relate to the story of the women who Peter Sutcliffe attacked and killed. Um, I found out by going to Leeds Central Library where they had all of the Yorkshire Posts from 1975 to 1981 on microfilm. So I went every Thursday evening for about a year and I sat and I, I looked through, I didn't read them all, but I read quite a lot. <coughs> sat and I looked through every single Yorkshire Evening Post in that six year period. And when I found an interesting story or something that I thought related, um, I took a photograph of it and went away and read it properly when I got home. So it was quite a long process. I was lucky that in 2013, the Home Office released uh, statistics on violent crime. I didn't know they were going to do that. I just kind of found out. I was like, wow, that's perfect material for my book. So a lot of the statistics that are in the book are from the, if there's a, in the back of the book, there's a bibliography. And, and if you're interested, you can look on that there. But at the time, it was very interesting to try to unpick the statistics because at the time, Things were not always separated by sex and gender. So, for example, it was impossible to tell the sex of the perpetrator. And it was sometimes impossible to tell the sex of the victim, depending on the relationship of the murderer to the victim or the rapist to the victim. At the moment, there's a woman called Karen Ingala-Smith who's been kind of unpicking all that. And she's also, I think, doing a PhD. I might be wrong about that. But I think she's, she's certainly doing some research. And she's improving the way 
that crime is recorded so that we can get a clearer picture. But I did make some really interesting discoveries um, while I was looking at the statistics. For example, I imagined that the crime that most women commit would be shoplifting, but actually it's not, it's violence against the person. So that's a surprise, isn't it? However, when you look at the um, level of crime, this is what's really alarming, that women commit so little crime and men commit so much of it. The other really not surprising thing, but that kind of confirmed <laughs> the way the justice system works was that black men commit less crime than white men proportionally, and yet they're imprisoned much more often. And that shows in the statistics from the Home Office. Really interesting reading. I'm not a statistician and I, I you know, I did my best. I kind of phoned people and said, what does this mean? And so, um, but even so, just as, a, as an amateur sleuth, it would made very interesting reading. Obviously, this is about the tidal wave of sexual crime that goes unreported. Um, unfortunately, if you do report it, you don't count. Um, if you don't report it, you don't count. But you don't count much more if you do, which is what it says at the foot of that page. I'm going to show you this one because this is one that I had in a folder for about two years before I got it out. And I went to talk at Ladies Do Comics in London and uh, Paul Gravette was sitting in the front row. And I got these drawings and I said, oh, I'm, I think I'm writing a book. I don't know, this is how far I've got. And I just kind of went through my slides. And I had put this one in right at the last minute because I thought it was, I don't know, for some reason I just didn't like it. And it, I'd been hiding it from myself, like you do with artwork that you don't like. And at the end of the talk, he said, oh, just go back to that one with the, you know, with the kind of sort of ground and the, and the girl tied down. So I went back again. Um, and he said, oh, that's so interesting. And it made me think that possibly, especially at the time, I wasn't the best judge of my own work. So apart from the images that I removed because of what the eminent professor said to me about inadvertent pornography, which is not what I wanted to do. You don't want to make child pornography under any circumstances. Um, I decided to just leave stuff in <laughs> and see what happened. And a couple of things got removed um, during the editing process, but I think maybe two images or something like that. And that kind of explains why it is a little bit random. I do know that, you know, it's... It, it's quite um roger sabin the comic scholar said that he it had lots of different registers and i think that's a good way of describing it um i just put this in i don't know why i put this in actually i just like the page i really like the i think it kind of shows the influence of persepolis um which is one of the first books i mean i really wanted that kind of monochrome very kind of black and white aesthetic and I just really like the scales with the massive slut in the one side and the little Thuna in the other side. Trees. Um, yeah, so as a, as a metaphor, I suppose, of something that grows as much below the ground as it does above it. Um, but also just because I really like drawing trees. And for my new project, I am drawing quite a lot more trees and also some landscapes. I had a lot of fun with that one. And I do this just with a pencil, um, sort of really, really scribbling really hard and then kind of making some of the, some of the branches um, darker and darker. And then I have like a really sharp pencil and I just kind of go like that 
to me, really tiny little branches. I think you can have such fun with pencils. I actually do a whole session on pencils that drives my uh, first years to distraction. I make them draw an umbrella over and over again with lots of different pencils. But it's, it's a really good session, and it teaches they really learn a lot. <clears throat> so, having made Becoming Unbecoming uh, did give me the opportunity to get grants and so on. So, <coughs> excuse me. So I got an Arts Council grant to finish a zine that I actually made before I made Becoming Unbecoming, when I was testing things out in my lunch break, when I used to work at Leeds College of Art. I used to draw little cartoons in my lunch break, and one of the cartoons I drew is in this book. It's this one. And this was during the time that my mum was actually ill, so 2008. Yeah, that sounds about right. She, I think she was ill from around about 2006 onwards, and she had a, a psychosis, and she'd had it for quite a long time. She wouldn't have any treatment for it, and she was in quite a lot of uh, distress and in some danger so um, we had to try to get a sectioned under the Mental Health Act which is quite a terrifying thing to do to someone that you love and a lot of the reading I've done around psychosis um, had been really interesting but one phrase stuck out for me and it was that developing a psychosis is like being trapped in a tunnel with both ends blocked and deciding to escape through the ceiling and thinking about all the conversations I'd had with my mother where she developed this very complex and complicated world that she lived in, that's really how it seemed that she'd constructed something, you know, quite complex and, um, you know, that didn't make any sense in this direction, that, but that maybe made some sense in this direction. I made it into a little zine and I sold it out of my bag for about £2.50. Um, I think I made a hundred of them and I've only got two left. Um, so no, you can't have one. I don't <laughs> think I'm going to print it again. But however, I have brought this, the much more glamorous book with me tonight. They're five pounds each if you want one. Um, <clears throat> so what I decided to do, oh sorry, yeah, uh, um, it has been picked up amazingly by an academic called Astrid von Rosen, who wrote about it in, uh, which journal is it? I can't see. To tell them Francis Germany. So um, that was interesting. Um, yeah, not sure what to say about that. So, <clears throat> so the drawing, the much more uh, resolved kind of story that emerged the second time I approached it, because now I had my mother there, and I could ask her. So we sat down, and I put my tape recorder on my phone, and we just had a cup of tea, and just said, "Well, can you tell me about what happened that day when you went to hospital?" And then I just listened to the recording back and then just drew kind of what, whatever came into my head. And so the first half of the book is the original zine and the second half of the book is her um, version of the same story. But it was also a chance because my grandparents had just died, um, my grandmother before my grandfather, to explore the house that she was living in because... So she'd, um, she was homeless, and so she was staying in what was the family home where she grew up. <clears throat> and this, this is the house. This is my grandfather's house. And he bought it just after the Second World War for £1,000. Um, and he was not a wealthy man. He was um, 
His father was killed in, first, in the First World War and he'd been a baker from the age of about 12. And before he was 20, he'd already bought his own shop. He wasn't old enough to sign the lease, so his mother had to sign the lease. And then he got another shop and so on. So he um, did very well for himself. Got himself a very glamorous wife and set up house. But he used to walk past this house every day. And every day he used to say, I'm going to buy that house one day. And after the Second World War, he did. And he installed his wife and his four children. And in the back here, there's um, a paddock <laughs> with stables. So a couple of them had horses, which my sister didn't get. She did have some nice dresses, though. I think that does come up in Becoming Unbecoming, doesn't it? I used to borrow her dresses when she wasn't looking. Um, so I had a photograph of the tiles in the hall. I had a photograph of the building. I had some photographs of the um, banister. And I just kind of put things together. You know how you take a picture and you've only got the corner of something. So I just kind of invented bits and put other things together. And really got very interested because suddenly there I was not drawing people anymore, which is much more my thing, but drawing bits of architecture. And I got really interested in the diagrammatic and different kind of aerial views and axonometrics and that kind of thing. Um, and I think for me, this is where the sequential really started to make sense. But not again, not in a very conventional way. You know, I mean, you can understand these as frames and gutters, certainly. Um, but not really in a way I've ever seen in any other comic. And here, obviously, this is a sequence of my mum and her twin brother fighting on the stairs, and this is my mum's story here. Um, thinking about page layout as being as integral to the image as the contents of each frame, I think it's really important. And I think that's one of the things people, artists, sometimes underestimate when they're making comics. Um, I think it's too easy to just go step from left to right and surround everything with a little box. With the funding, I bought an iPad Pro because I'm a little bit lazy and I can't be bothered getting paints out, frankly. That's why I always work in ink and black and white, and then I just add a bit of colour on Photoshop afterwards. <coughs> but suddenly, with an iPad Pro, I can paint with... This is the oil paintbrush. Um, and this is the pencil and also the perspective tool. Uh, and then I think this might be kind of watercolour brush at the back or something like that. This, this monstrosity, this is um, the sculpture that my mum made in the morning that, on the morning that she was sectioned, the morning she was taken to hospital. And um, it's not actually a brilliant drawing because the size of the room doesn't really come across. The size of the creature doesn't really come across. So if you see, can you see the white shape here? So it came all the way up to the ceiling. You know, she was already, I think she was already in her 70s and she'd climbed a stepladder, found a marquee, piled tables and chairs on top of one another and then she'd climbed up this enormous fireplace which is, you know, about this tall and pinned the marquee around and then here in the centre, this is one of my grandma's dressmaking dummies with a wig on top and some costume jewellery. 
And she called it her angel. And she had this kind of idea about my grandma. Um, and when she didn't, she couldn't articulate this at the time when she was ill. But afterwards, she said it's because um, the eggs and the burnt toast, because that was everywhere around the house. It was like some kind of, um, you know, uh, conceptual artwork or something. She, she boiled loads of eggs, sliced them burnt lots of toast to, to carbon and then she crumbled the carbon and then placed eggs everywhere everywhere I went oh look there's another one <laughs> and there was one on the hem of the angel's dress and she said it was something to do with my grandma and the eggs were to do with being a woman and the burnt toast was to do with uh, my grandma being a burnt offering she, she didn't know what that meant even afterwards it's pretty impressive, isn't it? And we had quite a few arguments about that as well because, you know, no, no, I don't think it was like that. I think that bit was over there and, and so on. So, But in the end, I had to just stop drawing it. <clears throat> quite pleased with this because I feel like this is where I'm starting to get some very small incremental changes. So here, these are the gangsters and Nazis who kidnapped her and put cameras in her head. And this is the moment where they're putting the, cam the camera in her head, and obviously the increment of time is really small. It's uh, just someone leaning forward into the frame. And I, I think being able to be playful with those kind of moments is, is what I really like most about comics, especially in comparison with film or video. Had some fun as well with... Um, some of her stories you know there was a little bit of a tension between what she was telling me and what i was understanding and what i my thoughts and her thoughts we had our own thoughts about everything she had these ideas that we were all different characters and she used to draw them she was drawing cartoons at the time and i was apparently a mexican goddess i'm not quite sure why i introduced you and your sisters you were it was the name of a mexican queen or mexican goddess Quetzalcoatl or something, I, I can't remember, but she was dressed in a poncho with a Mexican hat on. And um, I think your sister was a cowgirl in a very short miniskirt. So obviously, at the bottom here, it just says the Aztec goddess Quetzalcoatl was um, a, a something fertility goddess and she didn't wear a Mexican hat. So there are lots of little footnotes which I like to in include. And she liked them, she wasn't annoyed by them. Those amendments. As part of the project, we um, went kind of walkabout and um, we gave a couple of public talks. One at Inkwell, which is an art and uh, well-being centre in Leeds. And I engaged someone who had a bit more experience than I did working with people who were very ill. And we went into hospitals and worked with people under a section. Uh, and then we did the sort of normal gallery-based um, stuff as well, but again, inviting people who had either had mental health issues themselves or um, had cared for someone with a mental health issue. And I was just hoping that someone would produce something that would make a good cover for another zine, which would be the participants' work, and someone made this. We all start at the beginning, um, and we do. And you can see there photographs of people working on uh, various things. This is actually, I, I steal a lot of Linda Barry's um, exercises from Notes from an Accidental Professor. Has anybody looked at that? 
Oh, you should look. It's very funny. Um, <laughs> so it's her course for people who are not um, artists. <clears throat> she does several things, one of which is make a blob and adapt it into a character, which is what this is. I always tell people I've stolen it off Linda Barry. I, I, you know, I like to credit people with their own ideas. This is um, Draw Batman. So everybody has to draw Batman. Um, but the best one is draw a car, because people are terrified. People really, you know, and she says, God, the room feels like it's on fire. And all, all I've asked them to do is draw a car. Everybody knows what a car looks like. But everybody feels that they can't draw it. And they, when you get the drawings together and look at them, I think it makes a really interesting discussion. So these are some of the pages that people made for the zine, which I think are also quite fairly impressive and I really like this one and this woman came to one of the gallery based workshops every day I think we ran it four times she came to every session and I, I think that's a incredible I, you know I wouldn't be surprised if if one of my um, undergraduate students made that collage and presented it for assessment so really really high standard of work they were making so now this is um, work from my PhD, <coughs> which is called Small Stories, Drawing Comics, Oral Histories and Women's Lives. And you can see the connections now, can't you? Because I just got really interested in listening. So I was working on sound works, working on stories. I'd been a musician when I was younger. I tested out this thing with my mother where I listened to what she wanted to say, recorded what she said, and, and then kind of spent some time alone with her words to see what images would emerge. And I thought, yeah, that's kind of what I want to do, I think. I think that's a really interesting approach. Because it's like observation. <laughs> it's like observational drawing. Except you're only observing your mind's eye. But everything that we've seen and all the drawings I've made in the past, they all get regurgitated somehow in this imaginative process. <clears throat> This particular image, this is from an oral history in the British Library, and it's Lindis Percy's oral history, and she's a peace activist who was at Greenham Common, and she now, um, she lives in Harrogate and spends a lot of time on Menwith Hill at the American Air Base, probably doesn't mean anything to you, but Menwith Hill is a quite a famous American Air Base that's been there quite a long time. She's a woman in her 70s, possibly in her 80s now, I'm not sure, but she's out there every Tuesday night shouting at people and telling them to go home, which I think is amazing. Um, <clears throat> and this is her story of, a, of going to a dance when she was training to be a nurse. And she says, I remember the first kiss. Well, it's wonderful, isn't it? Well, it's your, you know, you've arrived, haven't you? You feel like the bee's knees, which I think is really nice expression the bee's knees really interesting listening to oral histories and the kind of random things that you doodle in your sketchbook when you're listening also being in the british library with headphones on and you know kind of it's very it's quiet in there anyway but when you're listening you're very isolated and it's a really strange experience to be listening to someone's voice telling about bras <laughs> and then kind of occasionally looking up and thinking, did I just laugh out loud then? I'm not sure. And it, it, it's a, a really um, 
it was it's been a really wonderfully sensory experience to listen to a lot of oral history i can definitely recommend it but you need a lot of patience because some of the oral histories are nine hours long um you know and to really get to know someone you do need to listen to it a few times um but i do feel that you get to know the person or i got to know the person anyway quite well i went did go to meet um, the three women whose stories appear in my PhD and that was really lovely and they said a lot of the same things that they said on the recording which I thought was interesting because sometimes I think Art Spiegelman says in uh, MetaMouse that his father seemed to, once he'd stopped remembering, seemed to have settled on a story and sometimes repeated verbatim and I'd say that that's what some of my participants were doing. They were They'd told their story and then it had settled into a kind of pattern and then they were just repeating the pattern. But I did feel that I knew them really well before I arrived in a cafe or at their house or for a cup of tea. <clears throat> this story about bras is from Betty Cook's oral history and um, she was a miner's wife in the 1984 and 85 miners' strike. And she's one of the original founders of Women Against Pit Closures. And she had to uh, argue with the NUM, who had only provided soup kitchens for the men, that there might be a case for <laughs> some food for the women and children. And also, what about the widowers? Yeah, so they could eat, but their children couldn't. Um, and this is a story about somebody telling uh, a, a very uh, patronising of health visitor um, who told her mother to wear a bra. Uh, and then she said, and when I was going to go nursing, I had to have a medical, and it was the family doctor that we'd had for years and years. And my mum said to him, and will you tell her she needn't wear a bra? It's a, you know, it's not a necessity. And Dr. Graham just looked at her and he said, Catherine, she will wear a bra, and it's time you did as well. So after that, she did. She did wear a bra, but yeah. I really like those kind of repetitions you get in speech, you know. After that, she did. She did wear a bra, but yeah. This is Lindis Percy again. So when she was a nurse. So anyway, I decided. I went. I decided to go nursing. I thought, oh right, I'll I'll do it. I mean, if my parents had pushed me or encouraged me, you know, I could have gone another route. I, I could have been a medic or something. You know, got the exams and done that. But no, at that stage, girls went into nursing. Um, and it's interesting the difference between. I've got three older sisters, I'm the third girl, and then nine years later my brother comes along who really pushed my nose out actually, because I've been the baby of the family. You know, so it kind of doesn't, the story doesn't always follow sequentially. But I really like that. I like the fact that you have to kind of think about it and slow down a little bit in order to be able to read it. Although, in my later work for the PhD, I have to say, I have taken quite a lot of the text out. I decided I was getting too attached to the text, and so the later works are actually just images. They're wordless. Um, this is a map I put together of Greenham Common Air Base, because so many of the women in the British Library have got oral histories were at Greenham Common. It's very surprising. Or maybe, maybe it shouldn't be surprising, but it's um, extremely commonplace. But what I couldn't find was a proper map. Because at the time, of course, it was an airbase, so it was secret. So what I had to do was piece together from photographs, um, from different angles, where everything was. And so this is the only map that exists of what Greenham Common looked like. 
around that is a story of an arrest. Um, and she says, she saw a friend and a friend was crying and she said, Sarah, what's the matter? And the policeman came and said, you're nicked. And I said, what do you mean? And, he, and it, it was the breach of the peace. And I said, well, I'm trying very hard to keep the peace. <laughs> and this is all the women um, singing. Um, I have a lot of fun with these little kind of crowd scenes because I like to... I'm sure no one else notices, but I have all kinds of stories going on there. I mean, there's, there's, there's a woman here who's in love with the woman next to her, but the woman next to her hasn't noticed she's looking the other way. And everybody's singing apart from one teenage girl who's sulking. Um, and people have got sort of things like she's got a Christmas jumper on with a reindeer on the front. It keeps me entertained. And this is uh, one of the wordless uh, drawings from a bit later on in the process. This is Betty Cook. She says, it took me a long time in my marriage to realise that I didn't just have to be somebody's wife and mother and there was a life out there. And that's her looking at life out there. And that's all the history of mining crawling up towards her. I'm never sure the whole of that photograph is actually, uh, the whole drawing is quite big, but when it's taken from a distance, it makes it look small. So, um, so, so this is my most recent project, CSE Principles, and this was commissioned by the University of Bedfordshire. And this is what's on my Twitter feed at the moment, if you want to look at all of the images. So obviously, um, this is something that I felt I ought to apply for, but they, they put a call out for a comics artist, which I thought was really interesting. They didn't ask for an illustrator, they asked for a comics artist. And they've been doing research for a long time, years, with uh, young people who've be either been sexually exploited or have got some kind of interest in this subject. Um, they've done research about what those children need from specialist services and how they feel about um, those services after they've accessed them. So there's a report which is due out later in the year, but what Lucy Shuka, Dr. Lucy Shuka, who um, I've been working with, what she wanted to do was to make material that then she could give out to social services, police, schools, and so on, that would help people that would engage people in, into thinking a little bit more about how they are with young people who've been sexually exploited. <clears throat> She's called the 10 postcards that we've just published um, this week, CSE principles, and they're numbered one to 10. And this is number three, give us time. We might have a lot of thoughts to process, which is my addition. This is CSE principle 10, professionals really can make a difference. And this is from something that one of the young people said in the report, she said, because people were all moaning about the police. And she said, that, no, my police woman, my police officer, she was all right. And I thought that's really useful actually, because I think um, having reported to the police myself, um, 
historic abuse. I think it's equally as difficult for them. And I think it's really a good idea. I'm very interested in making sexual violence and sexual exploitation into something, in, in trying, to, trying to make it into something a bit more attached to the everyday, something a bit more, because it is an everyday occurrence. It's not a normal thing to happen, or at least I wish it wasn't, but it is very everyday. And it's a part of the whole realm of human experience. It's much more common than most people think. And the only real way to get past, to kind of shift the culture into something a bit more, um, a bit less violent and a bit more useful, is to help people remain human beings while they deal with it. I really think that's um, true of the services that help people and also the people who are trying to access services. So it's been a massive privilege to work on this and it's been really good for me as well in many ways and obviously I'm the perfect person to have done this work. Um, got to meet the advisory board of young people, that was a massive privilege and they helped me to work up some of the drawings. Um, I don't think I've shown any of the drawings that they helped me work up on this PowerPoint. This is obviously a maze. CSE principles, one, we want and need services. If you want to um, look at all 10, you can just download them from the internet for free. Another little commission. This is about maternal mortality rates. It's being so cheerful that keeps me going. Um, it's, a, it's a commission called Crossing Borders by the Norwich Literature Festival. Uh, I think it's going to be an anthology of some kind. And I just, not that... Not that I think there's anything wrong with writing about refugees, but I did think that with a title like Crossing Borders, everybody's going to do something about refugees. And I wanted to do something about the first border you cross, which shouldn't be the most deadly. And MSF have been doing amazing work over the last few years. Again, lots of research. Everything I do is very heavily researched. Um, in reducing maternal mortality rates all over the world, in places like Burundi, where... Hang on, I... Oh, I keep thinking this is my MacBook and it's not. I'll go over here and have a look. So, oh, I can't read them. You'll have to download the PDF and have a look for yourself. But, but basically, the, uh, the figure on this side is the um, figure from uh, three, no, eight years ago. And the figure on this side is the figure today. In Afghanistan, I think, says 1,340 there and 396 there. So it's a really big difference that they're making. And they're making that difference with really small things like refrigeration, you know, um, supplying some kind of electricity supply so you can have refrigeration keep oxytoxin. Um, thing, really surprising things like, you know, having a, a phone number for the mama taxi. This is the mama taxi that can come and pick them up, take them to the clinic because... If you have to have an emergency caesarean in a developing um, country, in a rural area, and um, it's extremely dangerous. <laughs> they have to really try really hard to look after these women because if you have one caesarean section, you're likely to need another one next time. You might not be able to get to the hospital in time, you might not be able to get to the clinic. So all sorts of things that we imagine, you know, having an elective caesarean is like a luxury, isn't it, in the Western world. All the things that we imagine about childbirth are turned on the head completely when you start to look into uh, the way people like MSF work. Very interesting project. 
And then this is my last um, set of slides. This, so I've been commissioned by New Writing North um, and Durham Book Festival. New Writing North have never commissioned graphic work before, so and again, a massive privilege. And I've been visiting a centre in Stanley in County Durham, which is called uh, Be Creative. And it's basically a group of women who make things and support each other. It sounds really simple, but it's actually much more complicated, as you can imagine. They have really great um, results with people who are who have often survived terrible violence um, and they basically sit around sewing knitting making things gluing stuff uh, they have a little shop upstairs uh, where they sell things I'm thinking about as part of the project maybe printing on fabric some of the images from the book that will emerge next year and then they can make them into cushions and sell them and raise some money so these are some of the women from the centre. The working title is Beauty and the Bling, which is su suggested by them because they're very keen on um, shiny things, bling. <laughs> That's Lestrine, who runs uh, some of the groups. And these are some sequences from the book that I'm working on. So this is, the I don't think she'll be called Beauty in the final work, but in my head, she's Beauty. And she's based on a real uh, young woman who took me for a walk around Stanley when I went on my research visit. And I'm really interested in, again, keeping things really human and really real and very much in the everyday. So this is her crossing the road and catching the bus. Oops, sorry. I thought I'd got, six, I thought I'd got three slides. Crossing the bus, crossing the road, catching the bus. Um, there's going to be, um, I think it'll be published next year for Durham Book Festival sometime in August. So if you're interested in that, you should go to Durham Book Festival. It's very good. It's going to be basically um, a lot of landscapes, uh, beauty, walking through, walking to the bus, getting the blue bus through the green hills with the grey skies, getting off in Stanley Town Street, walking down the street, pull out with the inside of the centre with all the little rooms and all the activity going on back in again back on the bus back through the landscape back home very very simple story but i'm really working on it um to be um, extremely beautiful i suppose that's what i want and this is my last um slide so this is eve i think she actually might be called eve this is again a very unformed story and this is what i'm making for virago this will be out in uh, 2020, hopefully, a 200-page graphic novel. I'm describing it as a post-apocalyptic post <laughs> post matriarchal fantasy. That's what I'm describing it as. When I say fantasy, I do mean it's quite real. <laughs> it's based on uh, political events, news stories and so on that are kind of mashed together to make a dystopia. Um, Eve is someone who's out there trying to start again. And my question to myself is, if everything did come to an end, what would we do? What would we need to start again? And I'm really interested, obviously, as an artist in making things. I'm really interested in design. I'm really interested in redirecting energy towards constructive things and away from violence. So it's kind of, that's how the story's developing. And that's my last slide. 
So, yeah, time for questions now. Thank you for your patience. Thanks for watching, that was fantastic. Um, I've got loads of questions, but I'll defer to the floor to start with. Let's go on with Yeah, uh, thank you. It's fascinating. Um, I was interested in what you were saying about kind of the different registers um, uh, and perhaps how that kind of contributed to maybe a slightly kind of fractured style, which is part of trauma narrative. And I was interested in the way that combined with the, the really striking way that you had used sequentialization and kind of new ways. And I wondered if that was kind of trying to link them together as a way of foregrounding, trying to create new sequences to kind of re-inscribe narratives. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that's exactly what I'm doing, although not always consciously. I suppose I'm always consciously when I'm drawing and when I'm planning things out, when things are emerging, I'm always consciously trying to avoid um, the convention. And that's only partly to do, obviously, becoming and becoming is fine the way it is because it's an, a, a narrative about trauma. It's fine for it to be fractured. I think it helps the work to be the work it is. It it's, has its own integrity like that. I don't really want all of my works to be fractured. In some ways, the new writing North, the beauty book, is going to be very seamless um, and not very wordy either. There's only a tiny little bit of dialogue. So all my works are different, but even before I made comics, um, every work I made was different. You know how some artists paint, some artists make sculptures, but some artists, um, I suppose, just make things. <laughs> I suppose that's how I would have described myself before. Sometimes it might come out as a sculpture, sometimes it might come out as a drawing or an artist's book or a sound work or a performance. Or, you know, I kind of worked in lots of different ways. And, and to me, the, the central concept should really be the driving force in anything that you make. And that's why, you know, I don't just avoid conventions to be cool. I think it's that... The work has more integrity if you have some kind of core and just follow that core and try not to worry too much about what form it's taking. It, it will take the right form. It'll be the right shape, won't it, if you follow the thread closely enough. Um, I don't know whether that's answered your question. I think yeah, I yeah. might have deviated quite far from the whole fractured thing, but... Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you so much for your talk. It's fascinating. Um, I'm trying to head off everything now, but I wanted to ask, why do you like white backgrounds? Why <laughs> so much? I do, don't I? Um, well, just to uh, reverse that, <laughs> the new writing north, but will be almost entirely backgrounds. It's actually, so the drawings of um, beauty will be superimposed on landscapes. And in fact, the whole book is about kind of shifting color, um, which is a bit of an experiment for me and only possible again because of digital painting, because I honestly couldn't be bothered to do it any other way. Um, I think I'm quite attached to lines. I always, when I, 
make drawings um, I'm thinking about the form of the line and I'm thinking about the negative space that's created when you get because obviously a line has two sides see I don't see that as empty space I think it's possible to activate the space with a line so although it's white it's not necessarily empty um, I think as well in comics there's a lot of focus put on backgrounds you know can they do good backgrounds can this person do good backgrounds um not that i'm against that exactly uh, in other people's work but i'm against it in my work for the same reason i just described that i don't think i think anything that's not necessary shouldn't be there but also because this was a bit of a revelation to me coming from a fine art background where people don't even think about money really they're just making stuff and hoping they can eat and pay their rent tomorrow you know but my editor when i made becoming unbecoming it had tiny little bits of color in it she said to me well, there's no point in paying. Why, why am I paying for colour printing when there's only these little bits of... So she honestly thought <laughs> that the more colour you had, the better value <laughs> you were getting for your money. And I think that that might explain why so many comics are so highly coloured. And I find that really difficult to read. I know it's very popular. Lots of people really go for really brightly coloured comics. I mean, I can do like Chris Ware. Like, they're fairly brightly coloured, but they're quite... Um, they kind of, they don't shift around, they happen on the same plane, I think. They're quite flat, aren't they? They're flat works to me. Um, but I can't, uh, I can't read, um, you know, very highly coloured comics. I just find them really repellent. So, um, I, you know, I make work that I like, basically. Because that's, otherwise, why bother? You know, it's really hard work making drawings, so... <laughs> you might as well make something that you want to make, and you want to read yourself. It's okay, you do you need to go, I know. I can see you receiving. Should we uh, sort of wave and shout goodbye or something as you can say? <laughs> yes, thank you for coming. Oh no, 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 we're off. We're just gonna stand here and make, <laughs> make you feel awkward until you leave. He's just got a jumper, yeah. Put your jumper on. Well relative to that. <laughs> I feel like That's good, yeah, you'll be warm enough now. Um, you'll feel the benefit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you very much for coming. Relative, sound related. I'm just thinking of the, the sparsity of the page, uh, and I think of a lot of your work. Um, it's so lovely to see the stuff after becoming accepted. I blaze across these, but the, it's it's about thinking, right? It's about you have to, the reader, the viewer has to put, I would say viewer, not reader, actually. More so than I might normally. Mm. So, uh, the viewer has to very much participate or kind of even collaborate with you in the decoding of, mm. of what's going on. And that's partly because you use visual metaphor, so, mm. but also because it's, it's quite sparse, but you, you communicate a lot. Mm. Maybe that's a comment, actually. I wonder if we could go back to the architecture and talk a bit more about that. Yeah, I've just been drawing houses for the um, for this one as well. She's the the, the background actually is going to kind of come. It's going to appear little by little as she walks um, until she's the drawing I did yesterday. Um, she's walking against a 
kind of crazy fence and house arrangement and three panels, which it will be quite highly coloured, but it's also really, was really, took me ages to really complicate to draw. Look, that's got background. Um, going back to the architecture. That's just because uh, the only time I don't see anything like that is in a bunch, it's like a bunch of refugee complex mm. about migrant detention centres. Mm. And, and it's just, there's some really interesting parallels. They come in through and they do the similar, similar like the door frame, uh, as if you're kind of moving through. Moving through the space. Because it makes a very big impression on you. Some spaces make a very big impression on you. That's interesting. Yeah, it's kind of scary, but it's interesting that you said it's um, uh, migrants because I once worked with a group of uh, refugees mm -hmm. and the thing that made the, a really big impression on them, a lot of them were making collages and, and they read bricks of leads. They didn't think everything was going to be red. And it, it really kind of surprised them. Everybody was making these red brick collages. We were asking them, what was your first impression? A lot of it was to do with the space and the buildings. So that's, yeah, that is interesting. I think... Um, it is a bit boring to draw a lot of straight lines. I know um, Daryl Cunningham, you see, I, we work really well together because I could draw all the people and he could draw all the buildings. He really loves drawing buildings and really hates drawing people and I'm completely the opposite way around. But I do understand that if I want to make more complex stories, which I do, um, I'm going to have to grapple with architecture. So, yeah, I suppose that's me practising. The thing is that you get better as well when you're drawing. You get better at drawing whatever it is you're drawing. Uh, the only way to get better is to do it. Um, do you like it? Yeah, and the next one, the one with the... When you're talking about the... Yeah, the... <laughs> the building, we have a sense of that three-dimensional... The three-dimensional staircase. Mm. And the borders of the wall and the borders of the point. Mm. I think pages like that do take a really long time. I think... Um, I've had conversations about too much text before with uh, comic scholars, <clears throat> but I actually put a, a lot of time and thought into the words. So I, I've typed that out and then moved it around, and I've thought about the space here. And sometimes it's a bit of a compromise, like this word coming. I couldn't get it far enough back so then I'm altering the kerning I'm altering the spacing um, and then I'm taking words out so I'm replacing one word that's got six letters with a word that's got four letters it takes really a long time and is more about writing um, and layout than mm. anything else and in a sense that's a little bit architectural I'm quite interested as well in there's, there's a lot of writing isn't there in comic studies about Very comics as architectural um, well, things um, comics critics we use the architecture Mm, mm. Mm. And I think that plays with it very well, doesn't it? Plays with the whole yeah, concept. I like that, that switch from like the bird's eye view, where we've seen you walking up the stairs, and then we see it again like across the bottom. Mm. But we've, we've come down to that. It's just really. Mm. Anyway, I'll take it. I remember any, any more questions? Yeah. They just want to go to the pub. <laughs> That's totally fine. Can I have one more question? Can I have one more question? Mitch, do you have one more question? No, no, no. Uh, also about testimonies. 
yeah. Which is kind of related. That's so interesting. against them uh, being unreliable it's a really big problem I don't really have any answers if I'm honest I only have a lot of questions but I, I do think that one of the answers is to make the whole thing seem more ordinary because as long as there's a kind of gloss of glamour over violence uh, I think we have no hope at all of understanding it I'm writing a article for the volume on violence which was with the comics oh, forum yeah. yeah and that's more or less that's more or less my idea, really. That yeah, we need to sort of dust some of the pixie dust off off the off depictions of glamour, um, depictions of violence. Um, I can understand why people find it titillating and exciting. I I get that, um, but I think it's very unhelpful. <laughs> it makes access to justice really really difficult. Uh, for people like refugees and survivors of sexual violence. Also, there's a, um, a conference called Clear Lines happening in London um, in December, which I'm on a panel with somebody called Winnie, um, who's Winnie Lee, who's um, she wrote a book called Dark Chapter, and I think she organises the festival. Um, you should Google her as well. She's very interesting because she's written, she was raped in Belfast um, uh, about five, six years ago, I think. And um, when she was hiking and she did get a prosecution and she did get compensation, um, but she did suffer, suffer a lot of trauma and her entire life has changed as a result of it. But she wrote the book partly from her perspective and partly from his, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, it's a really beautifully written book, actually. Um, so there's a lot, I mean, I'm part of a wave of people who are doing this and we all have to just do it in our own way. And there's a particularly a right way of doing it. But just the fact that lots of people are talking and doing things, I think is really great. Can't ask for more than that, can you? And then we'll just see where it takes us. And most people, I mean, I think artists are kind of happy to do that, aren't they? They're happy to just start doing something and then see where they end up. <laughs> and it's something that's particular to artists. So we do have a role to play in that. That's kind of what I meant about the, your page is a space to, just to sit and think about it. Yeah. 
I hope that that is what I do because I do. I'm interested in how Chris Ware says that he tries to slow people down, and I think he does succeed doing that. I worry that I sometimes hurry people up, <laughs> hurry them along. I mean, I think that's a good page for kind of really gazing at, isn't it? Before you start to read it and maybe kind of going backwards and forwards. Um, but yeah, there are some pages where, um, like this one. It's kind of a bit of a one-liner or something. So, um, but maybe that's okay to have different paces in your book, in your work as well. I, you see, I'm still working all this out. It's, um, I, I'm not sure when I won't be new because I've been doing this for a decade now. So I'm not quite sure at what point will I stop calling myself a beginner. Who knows? <laughs> we all start at the beginning. We all start at the beginning. I did. <laughs> I'm still there. I still feel like I'm there. If I live to be a hundred, I'll still feel like a beginner, I think. <laughs> Should we go to the pub now? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, thanks for coming, everybody. And, uh, yeah, we've got another event in two weeks' time. If you're not on the mailing list of the commentary, but would like to be, just come and give me your email. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, please come to the pub if you'd like to have a drink. Uh, and please uh, let me join me in thanking you for what was really amazing to me. Thank you.